Exodus chapter 15 and verses 1 to 21. Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. They said, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. He has thrown the horse and its rider into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. Yahweh is his name. He threw Pharaoh's chariots and his army into the sea. The elite of his officers were drowned in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They sank to the depths like a stone. Lord, your right hand is glorious in power. Lord, your right hand shattered the enemy. You overthrew your adversaries by your great majesty. You unleashed your burning wrath. It consumed them like stubble. The waters heaped up at the blast of your nostrils. The current stood firm like a dam. The watery depths congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire will be gratified at their expense. I will draw my sword, my hand will destroy them. But you blew with your breath, and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Lord, who is like you among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, revered with praises, performing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, and the earth swallowed them. You will lead the people. You have redeemed with your faithful love. You will guide them to your holy dwelling with your strength. When the peoples hear, they will shudder. Anguish will seize the inhabitants of Philistia. Then the chiefs of Edom will be terrified. Trembling will seize the leaders of Moab. The inhabitants of Canaan will panic, and terror and dread will fall on them. They will be as still as a stone because of your powerful arm until your people pass by, Lord, until the people whom you purchased pass by. You will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your possession. Lord, you have prepared the place for your dwelling. Lord, your hands have established the sanctuary. The Lord will reign forever and ever. When Pharaoh's horses with his chariots and horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought the waters of the sea back over them. But the Israelites walked through the sea on dry ground. Then Miriam, the prophetess, Aaron's sister, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women followed her with their tambourines and danced. Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. He has thrown the horse and its rider into the sea. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everyone. Let's just pray uh, before we consider God's word together. Our Lord and our God, we do thank you for your word. Your word is truth. Now, Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So we return this morning to uh, Exodus, Exodus chapter 15, uh, and uh, we've 
come to this special and unique moment where in the culmination of the deliverance of God's people from Egypt, which we saw last week, the escape over the Red Sea, the result in the hearts of the people is faith and reverence for the Lord and a recognition that Moses really was the servant of the Lord. And uh, what we want to do this week is consider together this exuberant hymn of praise. It's a kind of victory poem, really, uh, on the bank on the other side. It comes from the lips of Moses and the people, and then there's a response from Miriam and the women of Israel. And the subject and the object of the poem, of the hymn, is Yahweh, is, is God himself. Now, the, the flow of the song of the hymn constitutes a kind of sermon, so it makes it fairly easy, and it moves from the uh, destruction of Pharaoh and his elites, his armies in the watery depths of the Red Sea, and it kind of reminds us a little bit, it's reminiscent of the, the chaos of the waters at creation and, and at the flood and God's triumph over them, and it takes us right through at the end of the hymn to the total reign of God over all things as he overcomes, as he triumphs in his wrath and judgment. And so the song speaks of redemption, of the mountain of the Lord, that Zion, of the dwelling place of God and the everlasting reign of God. So actually in a single hymn, you have the sweep of uh, redemption history in these few verses. You have the whole sweep of redemption history implicit. It's not just a review of God's deliverance of the people from Egypt. It's a prophetic song about total salvation and God's victory in history. So that's how we're going to consider this passage this morning under four heads. First of all, the day of the Lord, that's in verses 1 through 5, the day of the Lord, and that is the meaning of history. The day of the Lord, the meaning of history. Then we'll think about the battle of the Lord. That focuses in verses 6 through 10, that's the struggle for history. And then the salvation victory of the Lord, that's 11 through 19, that's God's victory in history. And then there's kind of a reprise at the end, Miriam's uh, song of praise. So that's how we'll consider the song this morning. First of all, the day of the Lord, the meaning of history. When uh, the Lord comes in judgment and salvation... Whenever the Lord comes in judgment and salvation, we are met with the biblical understanding of the day of the Lord. So the day of the Lord is a, is a broad idea in the Bible. And wherever, whenever God comes to judge and to save, it is the day of the Lord. And if you think about it, a little bit earlier, the Israelites were in a terrible situation. They were trapped by the Red Sea. It seemed like God was leading them a rather strange way out of Egypt, if you actually look at a map. 
and they've got the Egyptians on one side, they've got the mountains on the other, and then they've got the Red Sea, and there's nowhere to go. And so they're saying to Moses, have you, have you brought us out here to die? They're terrified. They think it's all over. They're in this desperate situation, and God leads them there so that they will surrender to the Lord in faith when there's no other deliverance but the Lord. And sometimes we have to get to that place where we feel trapped. We come to the end of ourselves, and there is no other way, there's no other deliverance but the Lord's deliverance. And this is where they were, trapped against the sea and the armies of Egypt. But then on the bank, the other side, after what we saw last week, they sing of the Lord's victory, and it really is about the Lord. It's not about them. It's not even about Moses. We call it the song of Moses, but it's not a song about Moses. It's about the Lord. God breaks in, and he acts in a singular fashion, and really the Exodus events, it's not just the one event, the Exodus events, the events of the Exodus are actually in Scripture the biblical paradigm for the meaning of the day of the Lord. The Lord, Moses sings with the people, has triumphed gloriously, or some translations say is highly exalted, and he's thrown the horse and the rider into the sea. Look at verse 2 and 3. Strength and my song, he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. So when God visits in history with judgment and salvation, you are encountering the meaning of the day of the Lord. So when Noah and his family are kept safe in the ark through the flood, it's the day of the Lord. When Christ first came and entered history, declaring the kingdom, it was the day of the Lord. When in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit is poured out upon the people, it's the day of the Lord. And when Christ returns, when the Lord returns, it's the day of the Lord. So all of this is what's meant in Scripture by the day of the Lord. The one is an extension of the other. So the day of the Lord is a broad idea, and there are many days on which the Lord manifests himself. Now, the Bible actually explicitly teaches us to think of the day of the Lord in connection with Egypt's fate. Because we're actually told that the song of Moses will be sung during the final plagues of judgment. And we're going to come to that at the very end. So it wasn't just a song that Moses and the Israelites sing. That's why I've called the sermon today, You Will Sing the Song of Moses. Because this is a song about the day of the Lord in the macro. And here's one of the days, the deliverance, this paradigmatic event at Egypt. Now, recall that uh, this was, has been mentioned in previous weeks, that before his death, Joseph had prophesied concerning the deliverance of God's people from Egypt, and he actually required an oath from his offspring that his bones would be carried out with them. 
kind of an odd request. Exodus 13, 19 says, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him because Joseph had made the Israelites swear a solemn oath saying, God will certainly come to your aid. Then you must take my bones with you from this place. Now, there's an interesting side note here. We actually have in um, the account of the Exodus, and here in this song, a radical affirmation of the importance of the human body. The radical importance of the human body. The radical importance of distinct nations, because God was concerned to make a distinction between Israel and Egypt, and he wanted the distinction to be full and final, and the importance of land, of the earth. After all, what was the purpose of the Exodus? What, just so that people could go and sing in the wilderness? No, it was that they might be taken into a land that God was promising to the people. So the human body, the nations, and land is at the center of the meaning of history. And the day of the Lord is concerned with this creation, with this world, and its destiny. The day of the Lord is concerned with this world, with this creation, and its destiny. Joseph actually wanted his bones carried out of Egypt with the redeemed. Why? Because Joseph looked for the resurrection of the body. Joseph looked for the resurrection of the body. And so did Moses, because Moses took Joseph's bones out of Egypt with the people of Israel. And this was a big difference between the vast majority of the pagans and the Hebrews, because the pagans burned the body with fire. There's a Christian burial tradition is, has typically been the, the burial of the body, not the burning of the body. The Greeks, you see, viewed the body as a prison for the higher part of man. The body was a prison for the soul. And this is, this is, in fact, one of the reasons why when Paul comes to preach the gospel in Mar, at Mars Hill on the Areopagus to the Greek philosophers... They scoff when he speaks about the resurrection of the dead, or some of them do, because that was a backward step for them. The, the goal of life was exiting the body and eternal contemplation in some kind of disembodied state. But the direction of history in the Bible is paradise lost to paradise regained. And actually, the inheritance of Canaan is a picture of that, because there's effectively three land grants in the Bible. The first land grant is Eden which our first parents forfeited because of sin, and they were expelled from the garden. The second land grant is given to an obedient people, a people called out in Abraham to be obedient, the Israelites, the Hebrews, and they were promised Canaan. And in the end, they were taken into exile, and Jesus says they were dispossessed. Kingdom has been taken from them and given to a people that will fulfill and be obedient to the word of God will bear fruit of the kingdom. 
The third land grant in the Bible is what? It's the whole earth. The meek shall inherit the earth and delight themselves in the abundance of peace. So the story of Scripture is bookended with paradise lost to paradise regained. The restoration of all things. For the pagans, they hoped variously in vague concepts for the future like Elysium, some disembodied heavenly state, Valhalla, eternal contemplation. Some of them thought they might be able to join the the gods on Mount Olympus. Others that they would be swallowed by the nothingness, by Brahman Atman in Buddhism and Hinduism. By contrast, Moses understood God's covenant in history and he believed in the day of the Lord and with Job and with Joseph believed in the resurrection of the body. So by taking the bones of Joseph with them, Moses and the people showed they actually believed the exodus was the fulfillment of the covenant of promise given to their fathers. It wasn't just, oh, we're getting out of here. By taking the bones of Joseph, they believed this was God's act of deliverance and that they were going to be led to a promised land. Otherwise, they'd have just left the bones there and we'll be back. This is important because the day of the Lord concerns the covenant of God in all history and it defines the meaning of history. The covenant of covenant of God defines the meaning of history. The covenant of law and blood from remembering the garden of God, the first sacrifice was made by God of an animal to clothe our first parents in animal skins through Abraham, of course, a first Noah who took additional clean animals onto the ark and then after the flood, sacrifices clean animals to the Lord, and then God passing through the, the animals that Abraham had cut in half. On either side, God passes through to cut covenant with Abraham. This all means and concerns the covenant of law and blood. It means salvation and judgment, and it concerns the kingdom of God, the rule and reign of God as the total meaning of history. And I want to just comment on that for a moment, because you might think this is a bit abstract, typical Joe. Well, the meaning of history actually raises very profound and relevant questions for every society. Because, human vi- because the way human beings view their past and future will directly impact the destiny of their nation. When Israel was doubting and was in unbelief and wanted to go back to Egypt, why, that, that, was, that was terrible because it was a denial of both their past and their future in terms of the covenant of God. George Orwell once insightfully noted, he said, and I quote, the most effective way to destroy people is to deny and obliterate their own understanding of their history, end quote. To deny and obliterate their own understanding of their history. And we're seeing that in our own time, seeing how accurate that is. The reason is bound up with the connection that exists, of course, between past, 
present and future in the character and consciousness of a culture. Who we are is who we were. And if you forget who you were, you don't know who you are. If you have a culture that has amnesia, you don't know who you are anymore. If a people's understanding of their own history is radically altered, it has far-reaching effects on their view of themselves and their cultural life, so much so that a profound change can precipitate the collapse of a nation. If you radically alter the perception of a people of their own history, it can precipitate the collapse of their nation. You think about even the Ukraine right now, there's an argument, isn't there, and a a counter-argument about what is Ukraine? Who formed the Ukraine? History is being put to a political use. We all know that the whole discussion today in the West around political correctness and various movements connected with it is an argument about the meaning of history, the nature of our history. So it's not about, oh, we discovered this new fact about history here or there. It's not that. It's the transformation of our understanding of the meaning of history. That can destroy a nation. And that's why, if you ever get bored with it, Israel had so many festivals. When you read the Old Testament, you think, oh, it's a pretty exhausting calendar, this. Feast of this and the celebration of that and making booths and pitching them in the wilderness and reenacting the Exodus and so on. Passover. Well, the Israel's festival calendar meant that they were constantly rehearsing the events that the Song of Moses celebrates. They were reenacting them. By these feasts, Israel was reminded of God's covenant of grace. They were taught to understand their identity as the redeemed people of God, as a nation of priest kings. And they learned the central meaning of history is the day of the Lord, the kingdom of God. That's why they were always reenacting it, going back to it. And for centuries, the Christian calendar, including the central festivals of of Christmas, of Easter, of Ascension, of Pentecost, reminded us as the new Israel of God in Jesus Christ of the day of the Lord. Our Passover lamb is sacrificed for us, Good Friday. Our redemption and deliverance from death. Our empowerment, the filling of the Holy Spirit, which by the way, Pentecost, traditionally for the Jews, was, was a commemoration of the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. We're reminded that we're a kingly priesthood on a kingdom mission in terms of the covenant of grace. So the collapse of the faith in the West, if you want to understand what's going on in our culture today, the collapse of the faith in the West, its idolatry, our syncretism has led to an identity crisis, an assault on the meaning of history and a denial of the kingdom of God, of the reality 
of the kingdom of God. And that's exposed us, just like it did Israel, to social decay and collapse. We no longer know who we are. And this is why we have to continue to sing the song of Moses as God's people. A song that bookends the story of redemption in the unfolding covenant from the Red Sea in Exodus 14 and 15 to the Sea of Glass at the consummation of all things on the great and terrible day of the Lord. Now, in all of that, our hope and our comfort in times of trouble, in times of uncertainty that we've been in and continue to be in, in times of apostasy and oppression and persecution, is that as verse 3 of the song reminds us, the Lord is a warrior. That's an interesting name for the Lord, isn't it? I mean, we, we like names like God is love. God is love. But God is also a warrior. And actually, the fact that he's a warrior is an expression of his love. Because sometimes when evil arises, love awakens also to put it down. He is our strength, our song, our salvation. He's our strength, he's our song. He's our salvation. The meaning of history is the day of the Lord. When he comes in salvation and judgment. His kingdom defines our life. This is what Moses is really singing about here. It defines our life from cradle to grave so that we can sing with Moses as we pass the faith to our children and as we keep the feast This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. We have to pass the faith down to the next generation, keep the festivals, keep the feast, be reminded the covenant of God, the kingdom of God. So that the next generation will glorify him as well. So that's the day of the Lord, the meaning of history. Secondly, the battle of the Lord, the struggle for history. Well, the lesson of this section of the song is ultimately this. The battle is the Lord's. The battle is the Lord's. It's one thing to know the meaning of history. You might say, that was quite interesting, point one. Theoretically. It's one thing to know the meaning of history theoretically. It's even, you can even embrace the meaning of history by faith. But the reality of history to to live it is a cosmic struggle. A struggle between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. Of truth and justice against falsehood and injustice. Of the living God versus the idols, which was the standoff between the God of Israel and Pharaoh, the God of Egypt. Between the Son of God and Satan. Between freedom and slavery. Expressed in every aspect of life. 
The struggle is emphatically depicted, isn't it, in the Exodus. And again, in the Bible, the Exodus forms the paradigm for the struggle against sin and evil. The enemy of God and his people is depicted in the song. Let's look at it. The enemy said, verse 9, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire will be gratified at their expense. I will draw my sword. My hand will destroy them. It's threatening words. It's intimidating. We will criminalize Christianity. We will freeze your assets. We will destroy you financially. We will stop you from traveling etc., etc. Well, throughout history, individuals, tyrants, cultures have risen up against the Lord and sought to destroy God's people, which is what Pharaoh was doing. From the great persecution beginning in 303 AD, when the emperors Diocletian, Galerius, and Constantius issued a series of edicts rescinding Christians' legal rights, nothing new under the sun, demanding they comply with traditional pagan practices. Actually, some of the later edicts targeted the clergy specifically, demanding universal sacrifice to the gods. So from 303 right down to, let's say, uh, the modern Islamist movement in the Middle East, trying to stamp out Christianity in Iraq and beyond. Or right across to Canada today and our bills, Bill C-4, criminalizing the full practice of Christianity in Canada. There have always been attempts to destroy the people of God. But the battle is the Lord's and he shall have the victory. That's the meaning of the song. They were trapped by Pharaoh. They're singing now the victory on the bank on the other side. Lord, your right hand is glorious in power. Lord, this is verse 6, Lord, your right hand shattered the enemy. You overthrew your adversaries by your great majesty. You unleashed your burning wrath. It consumed them like stubble. But you blew, verse 10, with your breath and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. How often do you feel completely overtaken in your Christian life? with everything that's going on, maybe personally or more broadly, by everything that's happening in the world and in the culture. As though the world, the flesh, and the devil are going to have their desire over you and be gratified at your expense. It's a common experience for Christians. In the grip of oppression or persecution, how often do we feel terrified? Fearful of the future. How many Christian leaders have felt terrified the last couple of years? There are many deadly threats, some more deadly than past persecutions today. In rebellion, you see, fallen man becomes more self-consciously evil in his plotting against the Lord. You saw Pharaoh's heart being hardened. That's what we've seen these last few weeks. 
He hardens his heart. God gives him over to that hardening of heart. One commentator has put it this way, and I quote now, Modern man's evolutionary faith is in the natural order. So too, pagan man believed in the natural order as determinative and hence sought control of natural forces. Over the centuries, a variety of means, occultist, magical, alchemical, scientific and non-scientific, have all been employed in the attempt to understand and control the natural realm as supposedly the ultimate order. Power in that sphere is seen as the key to total power. But this natural order, which Egypt deified, had now become its death. The very order that the Egyptians deified became its death at the Exodus. Because the battle is the Lord's, you see, God turns men's idols against them. They might be military idols, the strength of a horse, the legs of a man, false religion, magic arts, or even modern science. Hasn't God this last two years mocked the pretensions of modern science to control reality by its technique? He's mocked it. Does he not, as the psalmist says, hold them in derision? Psalm 2, which ties in beautifully with the song of Moses. Why do the nations rebel and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand. The rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one. Let us tear off their chains and free ourselves from their restraints. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord ridicules them. Then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. So friends today, be reminded that the battle is the Lord's. The Song of Moses celebrates that. See, the great offense of the gospel, the great offense of the gospel of the kingdom, the offense of the message of Scripture in the modern world is that God is not a vague, abstract idea. He's not a principle. He's not a deistic first cause. He's a warrior who overthrows his enemies in history. That his covenant is about history and about the world. And his kingdom is right here amongst us. Jesus said it, the kingdom of God is among you. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Where? On earth, as it is in heaven. You see, that's the God that is offensive. I mean, you speak in university today or at work, chat with people over the water cooler about some vague principle of God coursing through the universe, people will love it. That's, that's deep, man. That's a haiku. <laughs> but if you speak about the Lord God, the warrior, who's engaged in history, it's offensive. It's offensive. 
You see, the God of the song of Moses is the creator. He predestines, he governs, he incarnates himself in the person of Jesus Christ in the midst of human history and he declares the reality of his reign. So whatever your circumstances today, remember the battle is the Lord's and it's entirely his. It's entirely his. You think about all the different battles that Israel has. It's almost always God acting miraculously on their behalf. Jericho, Gideon, Jehoshaphat. It's God at work. Whatever your circumstances, the battle is the Lord's entirely. Trust him. Put your entire faith and confidence in him, and he shall consume all his adversaries, sings Moses, like stubble. Finally, although there is a very small reprise conclusion, the salvation victory of the Lord, in verses 11 through 19, in many respects, we could describe the song of Moses as history set to music. We didn't get the tune, but we can have various interpretations. History set to music. And a bit like the book of Revelation, the song of Moses compresses time. Compresses time for us. It's one of the great things about poems and songs. They, they can do that for us. And it gives us this 10,000-foot vision of the unfolding of God's everlasting reign as it applies to God's people throughout history. I was reading a book this week uh, called Promise and Deliverance by de Graaf, and he says this, the deliverance of the people of Israel was a prophecy of the ultimate deliverance of all of God's people on the day of Christ. The deliverance of the people of Israel was a prophecy of the ultimate deliverance of all God's people on the day of Christ. So in this final section of the song, Moses lays out now his magnificent hope for the future, for the future of God's people. Moses, by faith, believed, we see it here, that the peoples of Canaan, of Moab, of Edom, would hear of the event of the plagues. They'd hear about the Red Sea and fear the God of Israel. It's there in verses 14 through 16. When the people's here, they will shudder. Anguish will seize the inhabitants of Philistia. Then the chiefs of Edom will be terrified. Trembling will seize the leaders of Moab. The inhabitants of Canaan will panic. Terror and dread will fall on them. They will be as still as stone. Well, we actually read in Joshua 2, 9 through 11 in the instance of Rahab, that what Moses says here is true. The word did spread about the deliverance of the God of Israel, and the peoples were in dread of Israel. But beyond that, what Moses sees is the mountain of God's possession. What's he seeing prophetically? He's seeing Mount Zion. 
He's seeing the Lord's everlasting dwelling place, the sanctuary of God, the center of his kingdom rule. Now, what has to be noted here in this salvation victory of the Lord, that is God's victory in history, is that though the battle and the kingdom is the Lord's, he invariably works through his people. That's why he calls a people and purchases a people for himself. Do you think God couldn't have pulled down the walls of Jericho without people marching around it? Could Could he have delivered the people in the time of the judges without using Gideon? Could he have parted the Red Sea without Moses lifting up his staff? Of course he could. But God, in his victory in history, calls a people, gives them a mission, and does his work through them. You see, it was the Lord who called Moses, but it was his parents who made a basket and put him on the Nile because they weren't afraid of the king's edict. It was God who blew with his breath on the sea, who stretched out his hand and the earth swallowed them, says verse 12. But Moses had to lift up his staff and stretch out his hand in faith. And that wasn't a small thing because you recall that when he disobeyed God with respect to what seems to be a simple action like that in striking the rock, he angered God. You see, our destiny is salvation, victory in history, but the Lord must lead us there through trial and testing. So the Song of Moses' compressing time gives you the highlights. But in the midst of all of that, on the way to the total reign of God, there is trial, there is testing, there's challenges. Look at what the song says. Verse 16, you will lead the people you have redeemed. You will lead them with your faithful love. You will guide them to your holy dwelling with your strength. Verse 17, you will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your possession. Lord, you have prepared the place for your dwelling. Lord, your hands have established the sanctuary. Sanctuary doesn't exist yet. The Lord will reign forever and ever. You see the prophetic vision in the song? It's not just a celebration of the immediate events of the Exodus. So dread was to fall on God's and the people's enemies. I love verse 16. Until your people pass by, Lord, until the people whom you purchased pass by. So that's a depiction there of the dread on the people so that God's, God's own people can be sheltered in the palm of God's hand till they pass by. What a beautiful statement. After they crossed the sea, God didn't bring them immediately to Canaan. Moses is singing about it. He's singing about the Lord's sanctuary that's been prepared. He's singing about Mount Zion. He's singing about the eternal reign of God. But he didn't get them there immediately. God didn't bring them there immediately. A short route would have been along the Mediterranean coast. A few days. 
through what was then the land of the Philistines. So why didn't God take them the short route? I mean, that's what we want, isn't it? Lord, short route, please. Easy route, please. He didn't take them that way. Well, why? First of all, they weren't ready for war with the Philistines, certainly. But God had much to do in their hearts and in their lives. And that's what we see throughout the story of Israel, of the Hebrews. He wanted to give them first his law. And for all those who left Egypt with Moses, which, by the way, the Bible says was a mixed multitude. This is often missed. There were Egyptians who believed what Moses was saying. And so when the people of Israel left Egypt, they left a mixed multitude, Egyptians and Hebrews. So God had to give the people now his law. He wanted to give them his law. And of course, the plans for the sanctuary and make covenant with them as a new nation. He wanted to make a separation from Egypt, and he wanted to shelter his people in the palm of his hand. And it was a difficult journey, and we won't jump ahead too far because we're going through Exodus. It was a tough journey. But what they were assured of is that in all the trials, in all the testing, and over against all their grumbling and all their unbelief, was that the Lord went before them. That's what they discovered as they were at the Red Sea. It's what they discovered in the fiery pillar and the cloud. God was going to purify them and teach them, just as he had taught our father Abraham, that the only reason they weren't consumed with the Egyptians wasn't because they were better, nothing to do with their ethnicity. It was simply because of the tender mercies of Christ who would one day stand in their place in the fire of God's judgment. Don't forget, the apostle Paul teaches, who was it who followed them through the wilderness? Paul tells us it was Christ. That's why it's a picture of our salvation. That's why the Exodus is the paradigm. It's why when Moses and Elijah stand on the Mount of Transfiguration with the Lord Jesus, the scripture says that they spoke of the Exodus he was about to accomplish. So by the pillar of cloud and fire, he led his people on a journey through the wilderness. And much of our Christian life feels like a journey through the wilderness. We don't seem to go the short route. We rarely seem to go the easy route. But, friends, God still precedes his people. He precedes you and me. He precedes us down through the centuries on this great journey of salvation, victory in the Lord Jesus Christ. In him, our Passover lamb, we pass from death to life. And he leads us through time to the final destination, the place of his dwelling, the sanctuary of our God in the new Jerusalem which his hands have established, where he shall reign unopposed forever in a renewed heavens and earth. That's where we're going. We're not going the short route. We're not going the easy route. The victory of his kingdom is a process. 
And he uses us as his instruments, as the people he has purchased, you see. As the people he has purchased, we must pass by all God's enemies, spiritual powers, sin, disease, oppression, even death itself, sheltered in the palm of his hand till he brings us to his holy mountain. And he tests and purifies us in times of anxiety, in times of uncertainty, through good times, through difficult times. And just like Israel, our sin and unbelief often make the journey more difficult than it need be. I mean, it would have been quite a bit quicker had they not grumbled all the way through the wilderness and complained against God. Undoubted and spoke in unbelief. Remember the spies that are sent out to, to look at the land? Only Joshua and Caleb come back with any kind of a good report. Despite the, 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 the fire and the cloud and the Red Sea, how often do we grumble and complain? And you know, all of that generation died out in the wilderness. They didn't enter it, they didn't enter the promised land. So sometimes our sin and unbelief can make the journey more difficult. So let's not make the journey more difficult than it need be. But God will test us along the way. But knowing he is with us, we walk on in hope and in confidence. I actually have glued into my Bible a reminder of this reality. It's a wonderful statement. I often come, come back to it from Abraham Kuyper. He says this, our Lord and King will never negotiate a truce with his enemy, nor will he retreat from the battlefield. He's a warrior, remember? That's not part of the quote, that was me. He maintains his forces against his opponents and never wavers. That's how it was when you and I were children. So it remains now that we are adults. And it continues into our old age. When we die, the battle will continue over our graves. And there will be no end until he who will open all graves returns. So Moses' song, which celebrates both the mountain of the Lord, the destruction of the armies of Egypt, and deliverance from the lawless and rebellious in Canaan, pictures for us God's final judgment on all wickedness. It brings us to the final great day of the Lord. On the day Christ returns, all his enemies will perish before him. And the scripture says he will slay our adversary with the breath of his mouth. I'm reminded again of Psalm 2 in the closing of the Song of Moses where the psalmist says, I have consecrated my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will declare the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will shatter them like pottery. So now kings, be wise 
Receive instruction, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with reverential awe and rejoice with trembling. Pay homage to the Son or he will be angry and you will perish in your rebellion. For his anger may ignite at any moment. All those who take refuge in him are happy. Now, ladies, it's not just Moses and the Israelites, possibly the men who recognize the Lord is exalted and has triumphed gloriously, that he doesn't grow old and feeble or fail in power, but his justice is manifest in history and he'll reign forever and ever. In fact, Aaron and Moses' sister, Miriam, a prophetess who speaks forth the word of God, picks up a tambourine, all you reformed folk, picks up a tambourine and leads a great worship conga line, by the look of it, of women singing and dancing in a reprise of verse 1. So suddenly Miriam, as a worship leader out the front of the women of Israel, with her tambourine comes singing and dancing, declaring God's victory. Sing to the Lord, for He is highly exalted, or He has triumphed gloriously. He has thrown the horse and its rider into the sea. Yes, there is singing and dancing in the Bible and real deliverance in history. So if you ever feel like it in church and you're feeling that foot starts to tap, just go with it. It's biblical. Well, I called this sermon, You Will Sing the Song of Moses. Because of, in the, in the glorious unity of the Scriptures, the Apostle John refers back to this very event in the book of Revelation, and he ties the judgment on Egypt to the last judgment and its plagues. And this is what we read in the book of Revelation. And with this, I'm done. Then I saw another great and awe-inspiring sign in heaven. Seven angels with seven last plagues, for with them God's wrath will be completed. I also saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire. And those who had won the victory over the beast, his image and the number of his name were standing on the sea of glass with harps from God. And listen to this. They sang the song of God's servant Moses and the song of the Lamb. And this is how it goes. Great and awe-inspiring are your works, Lord God Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Lord, who will not fear and glorify your name because you alone are holy. For all the nations will come and worship before you because your righteous acts have been revealed. This is the salvation victory of the Lord Jesus Christ in time. St. John calls the song, the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. Because they're one song. It's one song. 
There's one great unfolding covenant of grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. The unity of the covenant is manifest in the unity of the song that bookends the story of redemption. This is the meaning of history, the day of the Lord, the outworking of the kingdom reign of God and his salvation victory through Christ who calls his people to serve him and apply his crown rights in every aspect of creation. It is an extraordinary blindness to believe that we are called to defeat by the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't see that in the Song of Moses. I don't see it in the Song of the Lamb. So let's take the victory tambourine with Miriam and sing the Song of Moses and the Lamb as we come to his table now that depicts for us the salvation victory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.